Open your Bibles to Judges, to the book of Judges. We'll be in, oops, sorry, be in uh, Judges chapter 4. Uh, when we printed the bulletin, I wasn't exactly sure how much of the text we were going to use, so you see how it's worded there. But we're going to read all of Judges 4, and then during the sermon I'll make references to certain verses out of Judges chapter 5. Judges chapter 4. Uh, <clears throat> Before I, we begin, let me, uh, before we actually read the text, let me share a story that I, I hope will set some of the stage for the passage in front of us. Becky and I had been married just a, a few years. We didn't have any children yet, and we, we both worked at a, a small Christian school in, in, in rural central Indiana. And uh, <clears throat> one Friday evening, pretty late, uh, the phone rings, and it's somebody calling me. They, they had planned to take the, the uh, middle school students to Kings Island Amusement Park just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, for kind of an end-of-the-year celebration. So they had like 60-plus kids and some chaperones planning to go down the next day. It's mid-June. It's the end of the school year. And the guy who was supposed to drive the bus had been playing a pickup game of basketball that evening and busted his ankle. It's a stick shift bus, so you can't exactly drive it when you've got one foot in a cast. So they called me and said, hey, Scott, can you come? This was back before the days when you had to have a CDL. You just needed a chauffeur's license to drive a bus. And they said, Scott, can you drive the bus for us in the morning? I said, sure, I'll drive the bus. I got up early the next Saturday morning, got to the school. We loaded all the kids in the bus, and we were packed in there tight. I mean, it was three kids to a seat were packed in there. It's a warm summer June day, but with the windows open, we're, we're doing okay. We're having fun. The kids are singing silly camp songs and the, uh, the chaperones are sitting up behind the driver. They're, they're fellowshipping and chatting, and we're having a great old time. Good old time. When we get out, we get just outside of Cincinnati on the I-275 Beltway there north of Cincinnati, and, and uh, there was weekend construction. You know and how it is. During the week, they try to keep it open for the rush hour traffic on the weekends. So the three lanes of the expressway were down to one lane, so we were kind of creeping along. So the ride was getting a little old. There wasn't quite so much air movement. The fun of the silly songs had died away, and it was getting a little grumpy. But we were just a few miles from our destination and the fun of an amusement park, at which point the bus stalled and died. And almost immediately, the person sitting directly behind me said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I was supposed to tell you the gas gauge doesn't work. We're out of gas. We're blocking the only lane open on the expressway. Needless to say, everybody behind was perfectly patient with us. They didn't blow their horn or yell at us or anything. So we unload the 60-plus middle schoolers. And, of course, unloading middle schoolers on an interstate sounds safe, doesn't it? So we unload the 60-plus middle schoolers. We get them over to the side of the expressway. We recruit some of the drivers. A little ways up, there's a, there's a, a ramp that comes in, and you know that V that it forms there. There's enough space. We can put the bus there and amongst all the construction. We move some barricades out of the way. We, we, we recruit some dr- uh, drivers behind us, and we push the bus, and we get it rolling, and we get it over to the... I had a good excuse. I was the driver. I didn't have to help push. Um, <laughs> we push the bus. We get it off the road. We, we sit there. The, the traffic resumes. And now we're sitting there, and this is you know, 30 years ago, the cell phones were not ubiquitous, and we are sitting there going, now what do we do? How do we get, you know, we're close, but it's still eight miles to Kings Island. We're not walking eight miles with a bunch of middle schoolers along the interstate. So how do we get there? Almost on cue, down that ramp comes a school bus. It stops. The guy opens the door and yells out to us, what's going on? And I get up there and I explain to him what the situation is. And he says, okay, load them up, I'll take your kids to King's Island. Oh. 
What? We don't have money to pay you. No, no charge. I'll drop them off at Kings Island. Seriously. And we had enough adult chaperones. It wasn't like we were sending these middle schoolers with a stranger on a company. We had enough adult chaperones. We felt like it. So he and he had a, a radio in his bus and connected back to wherever his headquarters, local headquarters were. So not only did he load up all of our kids and take them to Kings Island, but he also called a cop buddy friend of his who got a five-gallon can of gasoline and brought it to me. And I was able to fill the bus and get on my way and go fuel it up. Unbelievable what happened. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. It is an illustration of an unimaginable, unexpected salvation. Had we sat there dreaming, we would have come up with any other scheme but saying, hey, maybe a bus will come along, and it'll be empty, and it'll be willing to take us to King's Island, and it'll be willing to load up a whole bunch of junior hires. That's just not going to happen. I think in my whole life, if I've ever encountered an angel, unaware of it, I think it was that man on that day. Our story before us in the text today is an account of the unexpected salvation of our God. As we read through it, pay attention to the roles, the role reversal, the unexpected role reversals of the men and the women. The unexpected outcome of the battle that occurs between the infantry and the cavalry. The unexpected outcome that occurs in the battle between Yahweh and Baal. The unexpected outcome of the role of a friend who is an enemy, who is a friend. All of this is an account of the salvation of our God, which comes like that bus, big and yellow and exciting to see in a way we never would have imagined. Let's hear now from God's word from Judges chapter 4. <clears throat> and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between uh, Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from uh, Kedesh uh, uh, Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite had separated from the Canaanites, uh, the descendants of uh, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananium, which is near Kedesh. 
when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, uh, from Herosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between, the, between Jabin, the king of Hazer, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, uh, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's, let's pray. Lord, reveal to us all the various ways that this salvation was, was unexpected. All the ways that it came surprisingly. And Lord, as we hear the account of your salvation so long ago, let us be reminded of the surprising salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus who came in an unexpected way, who defeated death in a surprising and unexpected way, who, who reigns today in a way that no one could have foreseen, and who will one day come and surprise everyone with his return. Remind us that salvation belongs to you and to you alone, and that you are the one who plans it from beginning to end, and carries it out in the way that you have planned, not in the way that we anticipate. Let us rest in that as we hear your word today. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This is quite the story. There is a lot going on in this text that plays out in unexpected ways. I'm going to take it thematically rather than just taking it uh, 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 textually, uh, looking at some of those themes as they play out over the whole chapter. So first I want to look at this question of the women versus the men. Um, while we uh, have certainly made strides in our society today uh, toward the, the 
a, a, a more balanced view of the roles of men and women, and we have taken steps to, to recognize uh, uh, equality in, in important ways. Nevertheless, even today, we still recognize that when it comes to certain physical pursuits, that men and women are not equal. We know this simply by the fact that there are different sports leagues for men and women. If we really believe them to be physically equal, would they not all play in the same sports league? But they don't. We recognize that there are these physical differences. Certainly back then, they recognized these physical differences. So when it comes to things like battle, like war, like a physical uh, a confrontation, our expectations today in the world still tend to be that we expect the men to outperform the women on the field of battle. And we expect that it's going to be a man who has the final victory on the battlefield, who gets that place of glory. We expect the Medal of Honor to go to a man. And yet our Lord uh, tips that expectation on its ear in this text. That the final victory, the, the nail in the coffin as it were, the, the tent peg that got driven down, was driven not by the hand of a man but by a woman. And this Jael, she ends up being the one who, to the surprise of everyone, cinches the, the victory by killing the leader of the opposing army. And the way she does it is interesting. She has, you, we notice, you notice that verse 11 in kind of the middle of the text there about the, this, uh, this guy, this Heber, who moved and lived in a certain place, and you're scratching your head going, what does that have to do? why do we care where this guy moved? Why does his real estate uh, transaction matter to us at all? But it is a count of the uh, uh, providence of God that put Jael, his wife, in the place where she now lived. Because once upon a time, she didn't live there. But in God's providence, she and her husband moved to a new location. And as the battle uh, is winding down and the Israelites have pretty much routed um, their enemy, the leader, Sisera, of the commanding general, he's fleeing. And she and her husband have been on a, a good rapport with the, the, the Moabite overlords, the text tells us. And Sisera mistakes that, that peace, that good rapport for friendship. He thinks that because uh, 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 Heber and his wife Jael have, have not been at odds with uh, King Jabin, that they're friends with King Jabin. But when the battle is on the line, there is that old saying, blood is thicker than water. And Jael sides with her tribesmen, with her people, with her nation. Not with this king with whom she has had peaceful relationships. And she lures him in and she kills him. There's some interesting details in how this plays out. He asks for water. What does she give him? Well, she gives him a cup of warm milk. How do I know it's warm? Because they had no refrigeration back then. And today, what do we use a cup of warm milk for? And she covers him over to hide him from, the en from his enemies? Well, that's what he thinks. But it's so that she can go about her business without him seeing and snug as a bug in a rug, with a belly full of warm milk, he falls asleep. He's exhausted from the battle. I don't care how deep his sleep is. I don't care how much he was snoring. You know she is shaking. 
she is scared to death because if he wakes up, if she misses, she gets one, you know that feeling when you got a, a bee or a wasp in the house and you don't have the fly swatter you want, you get, you're like, I got one swing at this. If I don't get it, that thing is going to be mad and it's going to come after me. Speaking of something coming after me, sorry about that. It's going to come after me and I'm going to get stung. I got one swing, I better land it. How do you think she felt? I got one chance at this because if I accidentally wake him up, I'm a dead woman. And she sneaks over and she grabs the hammer and she grabs the tent peg. I'm going to guess there was no dagger laying around the house. And she walks over and she drives the spike through his head and kills him. And in the next chapter, we didn't read chapter 5, but in the Song of Deborah, Jael is praised. Deborah sings her praises, sings her glory for uh, winning this, seizing and, and, and cinching this battle for Israel. God set the expectations of his people back then on their ear, flipping it upside down, so that the victory went to the one that nobody would have imagined it going to. And, and, and surprising everyone, weakness was made a strength. The enemy gets lulled in because it's a woman. It's a woman with whom he is at peace. And he gets lulled in and destroyed. Weakness is made a strength. Then we see the question of the military themselves. The infantry versus the cavalry. We see this uh, 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 question of the 900 chariots of iron in, in, in uh, uh, 4.3, and then again uh, down later in what 4.13, 4.3 and 4.13. We see this reference to the 900 chariots of iron with which uh, 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 the king and, and his general Sisera oppressed the people of Israel. A chariot was the tank of the ancient world. It was something against which a foot soldier had little hope of victory. There was no way a foot soldier was going to take down a chariot. That just didn't happen. These, and these are not just ordinary chariots. These are chariots of iron. In other words, it's not like they can hope to pierce it. It's not a canvas something they might pierce with an arrow or, or stick a lance through. So now I'm a foot soldier. The chariot's elevated up on an axle, up on some wheels, and it's elevated. So now I'm fighting uphill. I got this iron wall in front of me. There's a teeny little bit of the guy's eyes showing over that wall, and that's my only target. He has all of me to aim at. I'm totally exposed. Chariots were the tanks of the ancient world. Barak had 10,000 men. Against 900 chariots, was that roughly an 11 to 1 ratio? But then we read that Sisera went out not only with his chariots, but also his own men following. He has not just the cavalry, but he has his own infantry. So the battle, the, the equipment, the military side of things is completely in favor of, uh, of uh, uh, the Canaanites and of Sisera. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 8. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 8. As Deborah is singing her song and, and praise to God's salvation, in verse 8 she says this, When uh, new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was she, she's asking rhetorically. The answer is no. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? Not only does Israel not have chariots, they don't even have the basic weapons of war. They're not equipped to go to battle. They're not equipped to fight. So what's going on? 
Well, there's something interesting that plays out in where the battle happens. Did you, did you catch that the Lord says through Deborah to Barak that I will draw Sisera and his chariots and his men down to the Kidron Valley, down to the river Kidron. Now, this is not a massive river. This is not the mighty Mississippi. Oh, it's the largest river in Israel, but that's a bit like being the highest mountain on Delmarva. It ain't saying much, okay? It just ain't saying much. This is not a big river. But it is a river valley. It is a wide open plain. You remember the last couple of battles? Some of you are way too young to remember, but in my lifetime there have been two major attempts to infiltrate the rugged, mountainous nation of Afghanistan. You recall in 79 and 80 when the Soviets tried to go in. And do you remember how the Soviets went in? They went in with their tanks. And wow, it's impressive initially. Their tanks roll in, and what are these, you know, uh, 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 tribal uh, 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 fighters on horseback? Um, how are they supposed to possibly fight against the tank? And ten years later, the Soviets left, defeated. Because tanks can't fight in the mountains. Tanks can operate on the rugged terrain. And then, here was just not that, well, 20 years ago now, back in 2001, the United States of America decides it's going to invade Afghanistan. And what do we do? We go in with tanks. And here it is 20 years later, and it's not at all clear that we won the Battle of Afghanistan because it's a tough place to do battle. If you're going to fight against tanks, you do it in rugged terrain where foot soldiers have an advantage. But the Lord doesn't call Sisera into the mountains. He doesn't entice them into the rugged terrain. He entices them into the wide-open Kidron Valley. So that they can, so that the chariots have flat ground on which to, to run. The horses can, can run freely. They can pull these chariots. The battlefield seems to completely favor the Canaanites. You know, we, we, we have a tendency to want to scold Barak at this point going, come on, you don't have any faith. I mean, come on, what are you doing here? You want Deborah to go with? But he's looking at the situation going, really, Lord? Really? You're going to take, make us go out in that wide open plain, on that flat ground, so that we have to face their chariots on foot, and we don't even have enough swords and shields and spears to equip our 10,000 men, let alone face chariots. You know, we see the confirmation of this. If you look at chapter 5 again, you're saying, well, Scott, maybe it's not all about the terrain. But notice the wording in chapter 5. Look at verses 13, 14, and 15. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. Now, before I go any further, let me get a real comment on this. We have a tendency to see the world in, in, in the perspective of a map or a globe. We tend to think in terms of maps or globes. And so down for us frequently will mean south. But that's not what it meant in the ancient world. They had no ability to get up above and look down. They didn't have planes or satellites or anything else. And they didn't, when down and up for them literally meant that way and that way. Up didn't mean north. It meant away from the ground, away from sea level. That's why, by the way, in the New Testament, you see they're always talking about going up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. They're going up to Jerusalem, whether it's north or south or east or west, because Jerusalem was on a mountaintop. 
So when it says they're going down, notice the men had gathered in the mountains. They expected that the place, the logical place to fight would have been in the mountains. And they have to go down out of the mountains. There it is in 15 again. Um, uh, uh, Oh, actually, it was at the end of 14. I mistakenly, mistakenly thought it was part of, of both of them. Um, I lost my place. Verse 13, uh, then down marched. Verse uh, uh, 14, uh, they marched down into the valley. Um, you see that multiple references. There are three references to the idea of going down into the valley. So we've got women and men playing unexpected roles in this battle. We've got uh, uh, the, the battle is, in terms of the equipment and the armies completely favors Jabin and his Canaanite army. And then the battlefield that is selected is completely in favor of the opposing army. So what's going on? Well, did you catch the little comment about Sisera there, about what happened when, uh, uh, near the end of the battle? Uh, um, Verse 17, four, chapter 4, back to chapter 4, verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot. Now, why did he do that? If you're trying to get away and you've got a horse-drawn chariot, you've got powerful, well-trained steeds that can pull this at a horse's pace or you can flee on foot. What makes more sense? Staying in your chariot. Stay in your chariot if you're trying to get away. Why does he flee on foot? Something's wrong with the chariot. It's interesting, as it's told in prose in chapter 4, we're not given any more to go on. We're left to completely speculate as to what's happening there. But again, if we go to the poetry of, uh, of uh, chapter uh, 5, we see some references to what's going on. Look at verse 8. Um, I'm sorry, verse, uh, sorry start, start at verse 4. Um, uh, the, near the end of verse 4, uh, the uh, Lord, when you went out from uh, Seir, when you marched down from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Interesting. Look at verse uh, um, uh, uh, 21. Skipping down to verse 21. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. That's an interesting description, because Kishon is hardly a torrent. It is not a massive river, as I already alluded to. What's going on? What happened? The clouds broke open, and there was a deluge. There was a huge storm. A tremendous amount of rain fell. And on that flat land, what happened? Well, the ground got soft and muddy. And the chariots couldn't move. They got stuck. And all of a sudden, the infantry had an advantage. And the cavalry, the charioteers, were trained to fight from their chariots. But when that goes wrong, what tends to happen? Panic begins to set in. And you begin to get, oh my goodness, what am I supposed to do? I don't know how to fight from here. I don't know how to do this. My equipment, my tools, my training are all meant to fight from this chariot. And now my chariot's stuck in the mud. And they panic. And they begin to flee. And even Sisera, the commanding general, panics. And he flees on foot. His strength was made a weakness. In the issue of the women versus the men, we saw that weakness was made a strength. 
In the issue of the military, the infantry versus the cavalry, we see now that a strength is by God turned into a weakness. And they are trapped. What's going on there? Why did God make his salvation come in this way? Well, here's a little something you need to understand. Baal, the god of the Canaanites, the god to whom we see repeatedly referenced in the book of Judges, that when the, when the Israelites, right here in chapter 4, just says, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but in other places, it tacks on, it tacks on the little comment about pursuing the Baals, serving the Baals. Even here in, in 5.8, we see that reference to the, uh, 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 when, the, when new gods were chosen, Notice the people have gone after new gods. They've gone after Baal. Now here's something you need to know about Baal. Baal was the rider of the clouds. He was the storm god. Baal was the keeper of the heavens, the bringer of rain. It's the reason he was the principal god of the region. For it's a region not like Egypt that is fed by a reliable river. It's a region completely dependent upon rain. And so Baal was the chief of the Canaanite gods because Baal was the one who rode on the clouds. He's the one who brought the storms. We've seen this, uh, I, I say we've seen it before, we actually chronologically it comes later than this, but it's probably more familiar to us. Most of us, if we've been church going for the length of time, are familiar with the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and the showdown that happens there. And in the aftermath of that showdown, what happens? God withholds the rain for three and a half years. And then Elijah prays, and the God of Israel brings the rain back. It is a thumbing of the nose at the Canaanite god, Baal. It's not Baal that controls the rains. It's Yahweh. And that's why the battle took place out in the open field, out in the valley of the Kidron, out there in a place totally unexpected. Not at all where you and I would set up infantry versus chariots. We would have run to the hills. As we see, they had to come down out of the hills because they were expecting to do battle there. But it's because not only the other thing that was going on was Yahweh was demonstrating that he's the one that controls the reins. They come at his bidding. At his command, the skies break open. And blessing is poured out. By the way, it's only in our culture today. Becky and I were driving along in the car the other day, and we were listening to a Christian radio station, and, and they, in the context of the song, they were talking about uh, being uh, 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 saddened by, the, you know, kind of, and using rain as a metaphor for sadness. And we tend to use that in our culture that way. It's only about 100 years ago that became true. For the first, you know, however many dec- thousands, millions of years, or whatever, thousands, thousands of years before that, rain was always a blessing, never a curse. Because in an agricultural society, you need that rain to keep the crops growing. And it's Yahweh that says, I'm in control of that blessing. Here, it's, not a, it's a military blessing, not an agricultural blessing. Psalm 104.3 says, The Lord, Yahweh, makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. The salvation was unexpected because it was finalized by the hand of a woman. The salvation was unexpected because of the way the infantry routed the cavalry. And the salvation was unexpected because Yahweh defeated the storm god. Yahweh used the weather to defeat the god of the weather. 
and it was unexpected. We saw already, and I'll only just touch on it briefly again, this idea of the role of a friend versus an enemy. Who, uh, what Sisera thought was a friend was, was merely an acquaintance, was merely a polite, uh, a courteous acquaintance. And God takes uh, Jael and that polite, courteous relationship and spins it around for his purposes so that she becomes the, the hand of God's salvation. You know, in all of this, we, and by the way, we, you know, this is a theme throughout the scriptures. There's a reason I had the Old Testament reading be the account of Jonah. Do you really think, as Jonah was sinking in the water, when he saw that fish coming, he went, oh, good, salvation. <laughs> I don't think he did. And who among the disciples looked at Jesus dying on the cross and said, oh, finally, salvation. Throughout the scriptures, we see over and over and over and over and over again. How many times is it the younger brother that is the one God uses? When society back then always favored the older brother. Being the older brother, I'm in favor of society at that point, but you know. (laughs) God would choose the younger one to upend things. How many times did barren women, were they to be the way that the people would be kept alive? And the world looks at them and says, you can't have a child. Even Abraham, the man of faith, friend of God, looks at his wife and says, you can't have a child. And yet it's not Ishmael that becomes God's salvation of his people, but Isaac. And the expectations of the world are upended over and over and over again. The weakness of the world becomes the mechanism by which salvation happens. Even Jesus, think about the way he comes into this world. Is he born in the halls of power? Is he born in a major metropolis? Is he born at Rome so that he might then connect to the halls of power and overthrow Rome? He's born in a stable. Is he born to a a mighty person? Okay, well, he may have been born in a stable, but, you know, mom and dad were wealthy. They just happened, she just went into labor unexpectedly, and they had to pull over, and that was the next. No! These are poor people, disconnected from the human lines of power and strength. But he grew up in a, got a great education, grew up in 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 a politically connected family. No! He's a carpenter who becomes an itinerant preacher and teacher. But at least he was really good at that and kept building things up bigger and bigger. No, he really wasn't. You ever look at John 6? I had to do a, 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 a paper in seminary on the leadership styles of various key people. And the final paper of the semester was on the leadership style of Jesus. And I actually wrote the paper tongue-in-cheek. My professor got that. I wrote the paper on what a terrible leader Jesus was. Think about John 6. John chapter 6 opens with Jesus feeding the 5,000. He has hit megachurch status. This is megachurch status. By today's standards, that's megachurch. By that standard back then, unbelievable crowds. And what does he do? He starts teaching them hard things, and they start peeling off in groups. 
And then he gathers a smaller group and there's the 72 that he sent out and he teaches some more hard things and they peel off. And by the end of John 6, you get to the end of John 6, Jesus is standing there with the 12 and says to them, are you also going to leave? And Peter says, oh, of course not. We totally believe in you. No, Peter says, where else are we supposed to go? I really hope Becky's not staying with me because she has no place else to go. (laughs) Jesus' salvation came in the most unexpected way. The way he passed his salvation, the way he communicated the word through these 12 relatively uneducated men, one of whom was a traitor. And then the movement is losing all of its steam because its leader is now hanging on a cross. But he'll come down. There'll be a miracle. He'll surprise us all. He'll come off that cross and and show that, no, he dies. And just so there's no doubt, let's run a spear in his side and confirm he's dead dead. And stick him in the grave. Three days. Plenty of time for the decay to begin. But he's going to rule over the world. He rises from the dead. Now is going to be the time he's going to take over and bring it all home. And he leaves. At every point, the salvation of our God is an unexpected salvation. It comes in surprising ways that we just cannot foresee. And of course... Sometimes the surprise is that in this temporal realm, it doesn't come at all. How many of the people of this book died for their faith? And the salvation for which they longed didn't come in this life. Oh, it came under the reign of Deborah. It came to the people of God at that time. Praise God. What a wonderful blessing when it does. But many times it does not. So we sit there, we, we worry about the world around us. We wonder if we're going to have an income tomorrow. We wonder what, whether or not we're going to be physically healthy in a few weeks. We worry about what's going to happen to our society. We've enjoyed a country that has been a democracy where the people get to choose as leadership. We're starting to scratch our head and wonder how that's even going to get pulled off. How are we going to actually execute that? And there's so many questions and so much uncertainty. And some of us are wondering if the sin that besets us is ever going to be taken away. When am I going to be free from this sin that keeps dragging me down? I hate myself for what I am doing. I can't stand to look at me because of the way I sin. When will I be set free? And the account of Deborah the account of Jael and Barak and the people of Judges chapter 4 is a reminder that our God's salvation comes at his direction, according to his method, according to his timetable, in the way that he has foreseen, in a way that he has mapped out. And it is a call to rest in that, to remember that, relax and to say one day Jesus is going to save me. 
one day he's going to. Praise God if he does so in this lifetime. Praise God if he gives you victory over your sin in this lifetime. It happens. He does set free people free from their addictions, from their, from their besetting sins. But sometimes he chooses to keep some of us struggling with that sin our entire life. Either way, his salvation will play out the way he planned. So that he gets the glory. So that he gets the praise. So that we look at it and go, he's the true God. Not Baal. Not science. Not the things that I'm going to pursue in this lifetime. Not government. Not my wealth. Not anything else. We are all, whether, by the way, this is true whether you're a believer or the reprobate, everyone is going to stand at the end and go, wow! The way God pulled that off was amazing. The way God pulled that out was unbelievable. I never saw it coming. Rest this morning. The unexpected surprising and beautiful salvation of our God. Even if you don't see where it's coming from. Even if you're not sure when it's going to come. Even if you're questioning the field of battle. Even if you're questioning the people who play are playing a key role. Even if you're uh, wondering about who's your friend and who's your enemy. Know that in the midst of all of that, God is working our salvation to his ends. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to wait for your salvation. It is not in our nature to leave things into your control. We so desperately want to to, uh, take hold of the reins of power and steer things in the direction that seems best to us. Yet, Lord, we see in this beautiful story this morning an account of how you saved through unexpected people, through unexpected military means, on a field of battle that no human would have chosen, so that your victory over the gods of this world, who are no gods at all, would be made clear. As we sang earlier, you are, in fact, mighty to save. Let us rest in that. Thank you for the unexpected way that Jesus came and had victory over death. For the unexpected way he has left us here to be his body on earth. And for the unexpected day that he will come back. Let us expect it every day. And live in light of it. We pray this in his beautiful name. Amen.